and to put it in context, there are about 20 different endorphins in the brain. But the most common one and the one that's really strongly linked to, say, runner's high has been shown to be 100 times more powerful than medical morphine. That Triathlon Show, episode 82. Hey, what's up, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of That Triathlon Show, the podcast presented by scientifictriathlon.com. I'm your host, Michael, and on today's episode, we discuss flow with Stephen Kotler. Stephen is a world-leading expert on the topic of flow. We'll discuss what flow really is and how it works, how it helps athletes and triathletes perform better in races and get more out of training by among other things, accelerating learning, reducing pain, and increasing muscle strength, the flow triggers that can give rise to flow, and some special tricks that you can use to give it that little extra nudge and push you over the edge to the state of heightened consciousness to feel your best and perform your best. Things that may prevent you from entering a flow state, and how long you can expect a flow state to last, and how frequently you can have it. But first, a word from our sponsor, Precision Hydration. They make electrolyte products that you can tailor to your individual electrolyte loss rate to improve performance and reduce risk of cramps. And if you remember back to episode 40, which is one of my favorite episodes of all time on that triathlon show with Jesse Kropolnicki, he stated that it's a sin when some athletes that train a heck of a lot for their girl race take time away from their family but then make easily, easily avoidable mistakes with nutrition and hydration. And Precision Hydration offers both the knowledge and the products you need to avoid such mistakes when it comes to hydration. And you can gain that knowledge by taking their free online sweat test on precisionhydration.com to get your personalized sweat profile. And you can then tailor that with their superior quality, very affordable products to not need to worry about messing up your hydration ever again. And if you end up buying any of the products, use the discount code DATTRIATHLONSHOW, all one word, for 15% off. So that's a nice little discount there. Now, a quick introduction to Steven. He's a speaker, a world-leading expert on ultimate human performance and director of research at the Flow Genome Project. And he's also a New York Times best-selling author. His book Rise of Superman is the first book ever to have been a national number one bestseller in the sports, science and business categories at the same time. And this interview is, I just did it as I record this intro. It's one of the favorite interviews I've done. So I'm very excited to let you hear about it. Let's just jump right in. Today on That Triathlon Show, I have Stephen Kotler, best-selling author and researcher in flow, among other things. But uh, today's topic is about that specifically. So, Stephen, welcome to That Triathlon Show. Thanks for having me, man. I appreciate it. It's my pleasure. We were just chatting off air and, and I'm very interested in the topic of flow myself and all sorts of things related to, to human performance. And, and that's what you really specialize in, optimal human performance. And, and that's what you 
right that flow is it's a state of optimal consciousness can you just give us a brief overview of uh, a bit more about what flow really is and and let's define it for the audience for sure it's a good place to start so technically flow is defined as an optimal state of consciousness a state where we feel our best and we perform our best and there's tons of synonyms right you could call it runner's high or being in the zone or being unconscious or the forever box um Flow is a technical term. I can get to why in a second, but it really describes those moments of rapt attention and total absorption. We get so focused on the task at hand that everything else just simply disappears. So action awareness will start to merge. Your sense of self will vanish. Time passes strangely. It slows down occasionally. More often it speeds up. And throughout all aspects of performance, both mental and physical, go through the roof. And uh, not to get too wrapped up in the in the background, the science and the mechanisms behind it, but but there are some pretty deep neuroscience behind this. So so can you just quickly cover that as well? Yeah, for sure. Um, so you know when you're talking about the brain, you you're all you if for, to, if you want to be accurate, you're really talking about three things. You're talking about neuro neuroanatomy, where in the brain something is taking place neurochemistry and neuroelectricity, which are literally just the two ways the brain sends signals back and forth. It's how the brain talks to itself and to the body, right? So what we see in flow is a marked shift from kind of normal waking consciousness. So normal waking consciousness, where we are right now, right? You've got a lot of activity in your prefrontal cortex, the part of your brain that's right behind your forehead, where we govern higher cognitive functions, your sense of morality or sense of will, complex decision-making, long-term planning, right? So that's really active right now, you know, just in waking consciousness. Your brain waves are in beta, which is a fast-moving wave where you are kind of when you're, you know, awake and alert and paying attention. Um, and um, 21st century normal, unfortunately, from a neurochemical standpoint is really our stress chemicals. It's like a steady drip, drip, drip of norepinephrine, which is essentially the chemical under anxiety and, and fear and cortisol, which is another stress hormone, right? So in flow, all three things shift. What happens is we get a really a marked decrease in activity in the prefrontal cortex that shuts down. And that shutdown explains a lot of flows, really weird stuff. Like why does time pass so strangely in flow? Turns out time's calculated all over the prefrontal cortex and the parts of it wink out. We can't separate past and present from future. So we're plunged into what research called the deep now or the eternal present. Um, we also brain waves, instead of being up at the fast moving wave of beta, they drift down kind of the borderline between alpha waves and theta waves. Alpha waves are daydreaming mode. It's right where the brain is sort of moving from idea to idea without a lot of resistance. And theta is kind of the way brainwave we get in REM sleep or hypnagogic state as you're falling asleep, which is like when the green sweater you're thinking about suddenly becomes a green elephant, suddenly becomes a green lawn, suddenly blah, blah, blah. That's, that's the brainwave change that we get. Um, and neurochemically, the stress hormones flush out of your system and they're replaced by five of the most potent kind of feel-good performance-enhancing drugs the brain can produce. So that's kind of the neurobiological signature. There's a bunch of physiological correlates for flow that we're starting to just now get a peek at as well. But um, those, those are the, the brain stuff we're pretty, we're pretty confident about. Yeah, that's cool. And and one thing that, that I immediately... Uh, started thinking about this when you said that the prefrontal cortex uh, is uh, suppressed i mean that the prefrontal cortex is known to be like the modern part of the brain the thinking part of the brain 
and and when I experience flow, when I in in triathlon, for example, or in action sports or adventure sports, that's where I usually usually experience it. It's as if you mentioned it, kind of or kind of alluded to it that you, it's more of a conscious state. But you're to me, it feels like I'm not really thinking. So so that suppression of the prefrontal cortex kind of explains that very well. Yeah, and and in slightly different terms, right? So. Um, what you're doing in flow is you're trading conscious processing, which as you pointed out, really powerful, very, very powerful, but it's an energy hog. It's very energy inefficient, uses a lot of calories. Um, and it's very slow. Conscious thought moves about 150 miles an hour, though measuring it has been tricky. The adaptive unconscious to use kind of the technical term, what we call the subconscious these days is, um, very, very energy efficient. It's very, very, very quick. So thought has been measured in the adaptive unconscious up to 100,000 miles an hour. Um, <laughs> so, so, you got, so you're absolutely right. So when we're in flow, one of the crazy things that happens is in a sense, you get to actually, it's the only time you actually get to watch the adaptive unconscious work. Right, which is often why, like, it's such a weird state because the adaptive unconscious moves so differently from normal waking state consciousness. Right. Okay. Yeah, that's a, that's a very good clarification. So, uh, yeah, brilliant. And uh, so, so for athletes, for triathletes, for example, or uh, any any athlete, really, I've I've read that somewhere on your website, I believe, that uh, in in one of your videos, it was that you said that there's there's a state of flow behind every world championship or Olympic medal or whatever it is. So can you, can you go a bit deeper into how athletes tap into flow and, and use it to, to perform their best in their athletic achievements? So, the, so it's, you don't, you can, there are cases of like world championships, gold medals, that sort of thing. You can win out of flow. You really, you can do it. It is incredibly unpleasant, painful, difficult, and it's not sustainable over the long haul at all. Um, so, but you can do it. Um, but it not, not frequently, not often. Most of the other time we see people in flow. And, and the reason is, um, from a physiological standpoint. So let's just talk about some of the things we know, the neurochemicals that show up in flow, for example, dopamine, norepinephrine, these do everything from kind of speed up muscle reaction times. We get more strength and flow. There's a, there, there's like a 15% boost in strength that was recorded kind of at the University of Pennsylvania when they looked at this. That may not be across the boards, right? It may vary from athlete to athlete, but that was a huge boost. And it deadens a lot of pain. So um, both endorphins and anandamide, which are two of the other chemicals that show up in flow, are huge painkillers. Right. So, and to just put it in context, so endorphins, that's the body's own internal uh, opiate, right? So if the exogenous, if you wanted to take it pharmacologically, you'd be taking opiates like morphine or, or uh, hydrocodone or, you know, that sort of stuff. And to put it in context, there are about 20 different endorphins in the brain. But the most common one and the one that's really strongly linked to say runner's high has been shown to be a hundred times more powerful than medical morphine. So, huge amount of kind of pain relief in the state too. to say nothing of the fact that, you know, if your decision-making, you know, cognitive function goes through the roof, motivation goes through the roof, creativity goes through the roof, learning, all those things are peaked. And I, you know, we can talk about why if you want, 
but it just amps flow is how it, it is the biological state for high performance. We're all built for it. The state is ubiquitous. It shows up in anyone, anywhere, provided certain initial conditions are met. And that's the second half of your question, right? Which was how do athletes get into the flow? So the answer is we now know that flow states have triggers, preconditions that lead to more flow. And there are about 20 in total. And, you know, 10 of them produce individual flow, what you would, the state you would get into by yourself out running, cycling, um, or the group flow, which is what happens when a whole team comes together and you see a, a group performing at their peak. Or so what you get in either like a great brainstorming session or, or if you've ever sung in a church choir, played in a band, or, you know, watch a fourth quarter comeback in football. Um, that's all examples of group flow. And so... Can you also experience group flow when you're in a race and you have your competitors around you, even though you're not a yeah. team per se, and you're so there's actually there's there's there seems to be, and this was um God the research was done at Cal State Fullerton. I want to say it was Kendra Visa. I can't remember who did the original work, but there are sort of like they think about it this way: there's you know solitary flow that you know you running alone or there's sort of like singular flow in a group like what a surfer or an athlete might get running with a pack or a surfer you know you're, you're everybody's surfing individually but you're all hanging out waiting for the waves and you're sort of competing for the waves but mostly you're competing against yourself right and then there's you know full-on football basketball baseball group stuff right yeah got it uh so go on did you did you Uh, have anything else to to add to those flow triggers and and to the, the the thing you need to know the most obvious is that flow follows focus right it only shows up when all of our attention is in the right here the right now so that's what all the triggers do they drive attention into the present moment for example risk is a flow trigger right so you know for your listeners what you might feel at the you know at the at the start of a gnarly triathlon something that's scary that's heavy right? It's going to focus you. It's going to drive attention to now. Now, interestingly, this work hasn't actually been done. It, it comes out of the, there's a lot of work on flow and sex. And that's some of the stuff we talk about in my new book, Stealing Fire. But there's, so there's interesting research out of the BDS NAM community that talks about masochists getting a very extreme flow state. They call it flying. And it's, it's triggered by pain. And nobody's really looked at this enough to talk about why, but it's, it, it's, it, this is definitely what we're seeing with a lot of endurance athletes. And the reason is really simple pain and especially extreme pain. What, you know, what you're feeling towards the end of a race, as you know, it's all consuming. It takes all of your attention. It focuses all your attention on that thing, right? That's what, that's what extreme pain is. You want to move like one step up the scale away from extremes, pain you're in the fight or flight response right where there are three options instead of one you can fight you can freeze you can flee right so choices get wider and wider as you move up that scale but extreme pain really focuses the attention on the right here right now so i think when you're looking at endurance athletes some of its risk some of it is is novelty complexity unpredictability those are all flow triggers those are all things that you know show up you know for certainly if you're doing any off-road running, riding, open ocean stuff, right? The ocean is filled with constant unpredictability and novelty and complexity. Um, so all those things are also triggering flow in, in, in the context of triathletes. Let me actually make this practical in a sense. So when I work with 
uh, runners, for example, um, who are really trying to spend more time in flow, one of the first things I do is I get them off the pavement um, and into the woods and get them trail running and making new trails as they run because you're massively increasing novelty, complexity, and unpredictability. So you're going to just get way more flow. And if you really want to kind of turn it up a notch, run downhill, right? Run some long uphill and then run downhill through the woods at higher speeds where your feet start moving faster than your than your your body kind of thing. Absolutely a phenomenal flow trigger. I use it. Um, I use that very method almost every day to put myself into flow and my dogs actually. Yeah, I recognize that definitely. Uh, running downhill and running, running off road—that that's uh, brilliant. And but also, as you say, the focus. And so, even on a like regular boring triathlon course that's pretty flat and you're pretty safe, you can have that when you're really in the in the zone and you're really focused. And but I guess that's what we really want well, to. I mean, that, that's what competition does, right? I mean, that's why competition is so good for so many people. It's a focusing mechanism, right? We're, we're competitive by design on a certain level. So it just, you know, and especially if you're wired that way, if you're a competitive athlete, you you love competition because it's a focusing mechanism. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, and uh, so, okay, let's get into this one. This is a good one, I think. Uh, how long can a flow state last? Because let's say you're doing an Ironman and you're going to be out there for everything, everything from eight to 16 hours, depending on your ability. So can you be in flow for the entire race or, or, or how, how does that work? So the answer is a mystery in all honesty, because what we know about flow on average is the state lasts an hour and a half. And we know that because the neurochemicals that really underpin the state, some of them are really short-lived in the brain, 20 minutes, 30 minutes, that sort of thing at their peak state. So that's what, you know, we know, unfortunately, what we find is that, yeah, all the time runners, you know, triathletes will go out there. doesn't happen very often where you're in a flow state for the entire race. Um, And usually I've found with endurance athletes, it takes a while Right. You have to get to some level of exhaustion um, before you can start reaching flow because flow shows up when we're pushing ourselves. We're using our another one of flow's triggers is known as the challenge skills balance. So when the challenge of the task at hand slightly exceeds your skill set, right, you want to stretch but not snap. That really drives attention. It's, you know, it's the Erks Dobson curve more formally. But um, so with endurance athletes, you don't see that right off the bat. It does happen, but you usually don't see it right off the bat. But yeah, there are, and you know, I, I had an experience where I spent two weeks in a nonstop flow state and I wrote half of a book in that state. So I've had it, you know, in as an athlete and outside of an athlete, but on average, it's about an hour and a half. Okay. Okay. Uh, and that's what you just mentioned about the challenge skill trigger. That brings about another question. Is there, what are the ways that we can, okay, so we talked about racing and focus, but is there anything that we can do in addition to having those components in place already to kind of uh, push ourselves into flow and uh, and kind of be the the final final trigger to make us easier get into flow state because at least personally i know that not every race is a state is a race where i enter some sort of zone or flow state so but if if we could do that it would be so much better we would perform so much better so some of what i'm about to tell you is stuff we suspect is true after having thousands and thousands of conversations about this stuff 
there's a lot of work left on this stuff. But it does seem true that, you know, the obvious stuff is really important. So when we, for example, we did a, a joint learning exercise with Google uh, three years ago, and we trained them up in the use of four flow triggers, uh, and we trained them up in four high-performance basics, get enough sleep, cannot emphasize, get enough sleep, drink enough water, you know, things along those lines are, are really important because it's a high energy state, right? Which is not to say that you can't get into flow when tired, but here's what, here's what's interesting. When you have too much norepinephrine in your system and norepinephrine is anxiety, um, you get out of that sweet spot between the challenge and skills balance. Um, and it tends to block your ability to get into flow. So whenever we're tired, right, your brain is always performing a calculation. It's saying you're tired. You don't have enough energy for this current situation. You can't meet potential threats and you feel more fear in every situation. So um, you've got to be tuned very correctly. The only other trigger that you might want, I mean, there's, you, you know, there's, I've done a ton of work on the flow triggers. You can read Rise of Superman for a breakdown. You can read Bold for a breakdown. You can find millions of videos on stephencotler.com or on the flowgenomeproject.com that go deeper into this stuff. But the, the next trigger that I think is really important and tricky to use in a race because it's going to cost you a little bit, um, but maybe effective. So creativity, which is what I really mean by that is pattern recognition. When I, two ideas come together, we get a little squirted dopamine. One of the chemicals that's underneath flow, it's a, it's a profound focusing chemical. It does a bunch of other stuff. But so you've done a crosser puzzle. You get an answer right, right? You, you link two ideas together and you get that little squirt of feel-good dopamine. That's um, feel-good drug. That's dopamine. So for example, when I'm out running and I do, or I do this a lot while skiing, you can apply it however you want or downhill mountain biking. I start creatively interpreting the terrain. So if I want to ski something really challenging, right? I don't immediately go to the super challenging thing and try to use risk as a flow trigger to drive me in because it's too dangerous. If it doesn't work, I could end up in the hospital. If I'm going to do something dangerous and dumb and stupid and risky. I want to be in flow. I want to know I'm in flow before I've attempted it, right? I don't want to use the thing to get me into flow. So what I'll do instead is I'll do a warm up lap where I will creatively interpret every inch of the train that I can. So if there's a little roller that I normally jump left off of, I'm going to jump right. If there's a, a wall that I can jump up on and ride and normally, you know, all that kind of stuff. So when I'm out trail running and I want to start doing that, I really like, I just interpret the terrain. Oh, there's a boulder. I'm going to see if I could jump off of it and speed, spin 360 degrees in the air and keep running. Right. I add in like, I call it hillbilly parkour. Um, it's not pretty, but the creativity, the interpretation of the terrain, if you start stacking creative act on top of creative act on top of creative act, you're going to drive dopamine into the system and you do enough of it. You're going to start matching the dopamine count you get from taking a big risk. So you'll start, you know, it's an easy way to get put into flow. It's a slightly harder thing to do in a race for sure. But for training runs, it's really good. Yeah, yeah. And that's, uh, that's super interesting. And yeah, I wanted to ask that about training as well, because you mentioned that, uh, that it accelerates learning. So I was thinking that can flow be in a training situation, not necessarily racing used to 
uh, enhance the adaptations that we can get from training, not necessarily physically, but With sort of everything mentally or quick shorthand for how does how how learning and memory work in the brain. More neurochemicals that show up during experience, better chance it's going to move from short-term holding into long-term storage. Flow is this huge dump of five really potent neurochemicals. So in studies run by the Department of Defense with uh, both snipers and radar operators, actually, they saw learning spike 470% while in flow, which is a huge spike. It's enormous, which is why you know people are working really hard on flow and education stuff right now. Um, everywhere from, you know, in the classroom to in virtual reality education efforts. We're seeing a lot of stuff because learning is so amplified in flow. What about the difference between elite athletes in any sport, really, and the normal everyday triathletes or skiers, uh, surfers? Is there a difference there? Are the elite athletes elite because they can more easily get into flow? And is that something they consciously practice? Or is it something that everybody can learn and... Uh, we're not just not doing it as much for the normal age groupers. So there's a couple different answers here. Um, the, with the lead athletes, yes, the answer is they're getting more flow. And I'll talk about why in half a second. And I'll talk about what we see difference wise. But flow is a spectrum. You can have micro flow, which is like, so flow has seven core characteristics. I listed a bunch before the merger of action awareness, the vanishing of self, time dilation, et cetera. Micro flow is when a couple of them show up at once, right? So that's when, you know, you, you go out for a leisurely run and you sort of forget, forget time passes very, very quickly. And you forget that your body's in pain and you have to go to the bathroom and you come back an hour later. And right. That's a micro flow state. Macro flow is when all the characteristics show up at once and it honestly just feels like a full-blown mystical experience, right? We thought flow, we thought these states were mystical experiences until the 1950s. For the first 70 years, researchers were looking at them. They didn't think they were mystical in that they were otherworldly, but they thought they only showed up in spiritual and religious people um, during rituals and things like that. It was only after Abraham Maslow discovered flow in a huge study group filled with atheists that anybody kind of changed their opinion on that one. Interesting, yeah. Uh, so are there any any other tips that we can so okay no, let me ask you this how 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 often can we expect to learn to get into flow if we if we start to practice some of these things and and go and uh, and watch your videos and and buy your book and and start to really try to get into flow is that something that you can expect to happen almost every training session even or is it something that you can't expect no no you can't and and there's no way so here's what we know what we know is, and we know this from, for example, we did that training at Google. We worked with them for six weeks. They did about an hour of homework a day, um, spread out throughout the day, but it was an hour altogether. And we trained them up in four tri flow triggers and four high performance basics. And what we saw in, uh, and it was 80 different Googlers and they were from all over the company. Um, so every department you can imagine, we saw a 35 to 80% increase in flow. Now that was, that's pretty good. We have a digitally delivered course on the flow genome project website called flow fundamentals. We do pre and post measurement and we measure, you know, seven characteristics of flow. And on average, we're seeing a 70% boost in flow. So this tells us two things. First of all, don't get super excited. These are all people who self-selected for a deep interest in this stuff. So their numbers are probably a little higher than what the average person can expect. That said, 
What this really tells us is that this stuff is really trainable. It's not that our Kung Fu is so good. I think it's really good, but there are a lot of other people doing this work out there who are just as good. But this stuff is really, really trainable. It's, I mean, it's really funny because when you start working with the triggers, novelty, complexity, unpredictable, these don't sound like much, right? They're really simple ideas. Oh, all these things drive focus into the present moment. But really simple ideas, you know, well-deployed are producing spectacular results. Yeah, yeah. So tell us a little bit more about the Flow Genome Project because that, that's something that's really interesting what, what you have got going on there with with uh, Jamie, your co-founder. Can you tell us more about that? So uh, we're a research and training organization. On the training side, we work with everybody from like the U.S. Special Forces and professional athletes through corporations like Google and Ameritrade uh, to the general public. And on um, the research side, We are the largest or one of the largest open source research projects into ultimate human performance in the world. Um, and uh, we are always kind of running a handful of studies. Uh, right now, it's a, there's, there's a flow and creativity study we're, we're doing. Next week, we launch uh, the very first ever comparative study between flow and psychedelics, um, which is a comparative altered states, uh, which is a, something that's really exciting. Um, and people have been talking about for 25 years. And finally, the technology has gotten to the point that we can actually start asking some of these questions. So we're uh, helping to launch with guys at Imperial College in London, uh, the first ever flow and psychedelic study. So just, you know, training, research. Cool. Yeah. And uh, you have got plenty of good videos, really good videos on their high quality stuff that I really recommend listeners go and have a look at. I'll link to to the site and uh, there you can find the videos in the in the show notes. And uh, what about your book, The Rise of Superman, that uh, that is all about flow and uh, decoding the science of, of uh, optimal human performance? So I have, I've written eight books. Five of them are about flow. West to Jesus, my second book, is sort of about the neuroscience of, of mystical experience and how flow relates to that. My third book is A Small Furry Prayer, and that is sort of the evolution of flow is covered in there and its kind of relationship to kind of questions around animals and, and, and mysticism and empathy and things like that. In Rise of Superman, that I looked at how action adventure sport athletes are harnessing flow to extend the upper limits of physical performance in bold. Uh, one of the things we, we do in that book is, is, is explore how this is showing up in business and in stealing fire we extend it from just flow to kind of all altered states that impact performance um and kind of give you a look at everything that's going on in the space and the, the kind of the huge revolution that's taking place in that space right now yeah and, and as as we talked about before before the interview uh, triathletes are on average pretty high performance in uh, in life and in business in general so i'm sure that a lot of your books will be uh, of great interest for for them not just from a triathlon perspective but but otherwise as well so so go and have a look at at steven's website if you're interested in that and and want to want a new book for christmas or, or something like that uh one question that i forgot to ask that i want to get into before the rapid fire questions is uh what kind of science and research is out there on flow in endurance athletes and if none uh, what do, do you have any anecdotal evidence about how it works and or how important it is i should say uh from uh, just what you've found with working with with athletes endurance well, athletes specifically i mean so 
endurance athletics has been deeply embedded in this research for a while for no other reason than um, Arne Dietrich, who is one of the principal researchers. He actually came, he's the first, first person who figured out that the prefrontal cortex deactivates and flow. Um, he did it when he was at Georgia Tech. And I believe he was running Ironmans while he was doing it. He's definitely a triathlete. And I think he was competing in the Ironman um, at the time. And so that was definitely, you know, there from the beginning. We know there's research on. So when the prefrontal cortex deactivates, it's called transient, meaning temporary hypofrontality. Hypo, H-Y-P-O, it's the opposite of hyper. It means to slow down, to deactivate, to shut down. And frontality is the prefrontal cortex. So that we know there's something called exercise-induced transient hypofrontality, um, which is essentially runner's high. And um, people, a lot of people have, uh, have looked at it um, to the point that like at the University of Arizona, just to see, they trained a human, a dog and a ferret to run on a treadmill. And then afterwards, they looked for anandamide, which is one of the chemicals that underpins flow, same psychoactive chemical that's in marijuana, actually. Um, and it provides a lot of pain relief and improves lateral thinking and some other stuff. Um, and uh, they found it in the humans and the dogs, um, two species that evolved to run long distances, not in the ferrets. And in fact, we think initially the first emergence of flow was that it emerged from distance running, right? We're the only species that evolved to run down their prey using kind of endurance and exhaustion as our strategy. So any creature who got a little bit more endorphins or an anandamide, a painkiller along the way, is going to be a more successful runner, hunter, get more meat, feed their kids, have more kids, et cetera, et cetera. So in the beginning, we don't think that was the accelerant that really drove flow wide in the population. I think that was something else. But we think originally um, that it emerged out of distance running. So there's a term. I mean, so not only do we have, you know, research on endurance athletes contemporary, the evolution of flow goes all the way back. Like what we know about it goes all the way back to endurance sport. Yeah, that, that's really fascinating. Is there anything out there on the performance side of things, like how, how much performance can improve uh, because of flow? You mentioned the strength uh, percentage improvements. Is there anything uh, as for endurance? Yeah, so, I mean, so most of the numbers that we, most oddly, um, so much, and so... The best book on this subject is Susan is by a woman named Susan Jackson, and it's called Flow in Sports. And Susan's awesome. She worked with uh, Mihai Csikszentmihalyi at the University of Chicago. He's often considered the godfather of flow psychology. Um, that there's a lot of data in there to take a look at. Um, we've got better metrics for cognitive function right now for what flow does for cognitive function. Like we know it boosts creativity 400 to 700 percent. Productivity goes up 500%. So um, the, we, we've got good me not me cognitive metrics. Um, we don't have, it's, you know, muscle reaction time, for example, is a really tricky thing to measure if for no other reason than tall people and short people have like, you know, the, the signal has to travel through the body. So there's a delay in measuring taller people than in shorter people, right? Because the, the information literally has to travel farther. So like it, it gets tricked. There's a lot of people who've been poking at it and poking at it, but I haven't I haven't seen anything that I love um yet. Yeah. Okay. Uh that's great. And I think that we've anyway we've seen that there's a lot of things that that we as endurance athletes can can gain from trying to 
trying to use this state of heightened consciousness and and uh, and optimal performance feel good and perform well in races and and we have some action tips like really focusing on the now and perhaps using the power of the group even in that individual setting and and getting getting enough sleep and and some other things so this has been really really useful steven uh, i just have three rapid fire questions for you before we end this interview and the first one is what's your favorite book blog or resource that anything really that your that the listeners of this show may find interesting well um book blog i i i go i'm gonna go with a book and i'm gonna so you might want, there's a great book that was written by a guy named Rob Schultes back in the 90s. He was sort of one of the only guys poking at this stuff before I was. And he wrote a book called Bone Games, Zen Shamanism, The Search for Transcendence. And he takes a long, deep look at endurance sport there um, across the boards, whether it's you know mountaineering, which is a different kind of endurance sports into, into running and whatnot. So that might be interesting. And if you're super interested in, in the consciousness stuff, did it to say, calling this book an introduction is wrong because it's not an introductory book at all, but it is my favorite book on consciousness. And it's called The User Illusion by Torney Anderson. Um, and it's just fantastic. Okay, we'll we'll have those linked up. And that's uh, really good recommendations. The fir- first times we've heard them as recommendations. So that's always good to have some new books and uh the next question is when do you get into your best flow state i you know um i mean i i get into the most flow while riding or hurling myself down mountains at high speeds so i ski i downhill mountain bike i like surfing um rock climbing can be fun but you know i also like i'm a gym rat i love i love lifting weights there's there's flow to be had there I do a lot of public speaking. There's a lot of flow to be had on stage. And the truth of the matter is my whole life is designed to produce flow. So if I'm not finding my way, at least in a a bunch of micro flow states a day, I'm doing something wrong. Do do you go backcountry skiing? And and if so, uh, what are your favorite uh, places to do that? I'm much more... um, a front country skier than a back country guy. I do, you know, occasionally go back country. And usually if I'm going back country, it's with my friends up in Whistler. Yeah. Um, or my, my friends in Tahoe. Okay. So the Tahoe and, you know, British Columbia would, would be my favorite spots. Um, I guess for back okay. country stuff, but and the truth finally- of the matter, like I ski, I ski, I ski 50 days a year and they're my favorite days. And I want to spend them going downhill as fast as possible. So I'm not, I don't have, I don't have an entire day to waste to climb right. up. Yeah, I'd rather I'd rather ski crap conditions at high speeds than waste an entire day climbing yeah. up <laughs> to get one. Lap. Fair enough. Fair enough. Like I just don't get it. I, I, I like to go down. Yeah. Gravity is my favorite drug. Yeah, and as you mentioned, the uh, the risk and uh, the speed that the the risk that comes with the speed, I can imagine, is a much better trigger for flow than going up, which is uh, ca- also uh, also. One last thing, by the way, just another trigger for your readers. Um, I recommended trail running. So it's not just the speed. It's also frame rate. So when objects are, are, where there's objects that are close by your eyes and they're moving by quickly. So single track mountain biking kind of thing. Um, riding a bike through traffic. 
gives you the same kind of right that also focuses attention a lot and there's evolutionary reasons but uh yeah speed is my friend yeah yeah and uh, finally what's a personal habit that's helped you achieve success oh i get up i start every day at 3:45 in the morning and Ooh, that's no right <laughs> yeah, I, get three, i mean like i get four hours of work done before most people are even awake yeah yeah no that's that's impressive that's very impressive i'm a 5:15 guy myself All right, Stephen, this has been really, really great and interesting. And, and I highly recommend all the listeners go and check you out on stephencotler.com and on the flow, not, not deep, but www.flowgenomeproject.com and uh, see, check out all the videos and the resources and, and, and see if uh, any of the books uh, pick their fancy. So that will, be, that will be really, really good for Yeah, anybody who's interested in, in this kind of stuff. I, I've looked at a ton of the videos. I spent way too much time researching this episode because I just got stuck in in the rabbit hole of looking at Flow videos with uh, with you and, and the other people from the Flow Genome Project. But oh, let anyway... Me drop, let me drop one more thing on you since you like the videos so ab much. Absolutely. absolutely. I'm starting uh, two weeks ago. I started it, but every Monday at three o'clock uh, mountain time, so two uh, o'clock Pacific, And uh, five o'clock Eastern, I do Monday of the Mind on the Flow Genome Project Facebook page. I do a fa half-hour Facebook Live where we take one very specific flow hacking detail um, and drill down into it for a half an hour. Perfect. We'll link that up in the show notes as well. Uh, all right. Thank you so much, Stephen, for taking the time to to talk to me and, and to the listeners. It's been really, really fascinating. I really, really appreciate you taking the time. So thanks again. My pleasure. So my hope is that you not just listen to this episode and think, hey, that's cool, but actually start to apply these different ways that we talked about to try to reach a flow state, both in training and racing. Do go and check out all those videos on flowgenomeproject.com. Honestly, I wasted a whole morning there when I had allocated an hour and a half to research and then it ended up being four hours and a half just watching those videos <laughs> but hey they were good and i got a lot out of it so uh i wouldn't call it wasting time i would call it time well spent so so go and do that when you have the time and and go check and check out the flow genome project facebook page for that monday of the mind live video that uh, steven talked about Highly recommended related listening for this episode is episode 17 of that triathlon show. It's called Brain Training and Psychobiology of Endurance Performance with Professor Samuele Marcora. And these topics are super related because in that episode, Samuele talked about how our physiology doesn't limit perception of effort. Uh, sorry, physiology doesn't limit uh, performance, but perception of effort does. And uh, in slightly different terms to what Steven used, that's exactly what happens when you get into a state of flow. You can reduce your perception of effort, among other things, just because of that pain relief that you, or reduced pain that you that you can feel when, when you get those chemicals flooding your brain. So I must say from a personal experience, I have experienced flow in multiple races. And that's always invariably when I perform best. Uh, but then the quest for me now, especially after this interview, has become to really try and learn how I can 
almost guarantee that I can get into a flow state on race day. And I think that the uh, creativity trick with the environment Stephen talked about is is a good way to do it. And I'll definitely try this. Uh, what I'll try, try to do is to imagine myself being on a single track trail, whether it's on the bike or on the run, in a fast changing environment with different stimuli for visually and uh, and sensory as well, even though I'm maybe out on a boring straight flat road and add those layers of creativity on that to get into the flow state. And one thing is for sure, this is not something that you can just wing it in racing and it will happen. You need to practice this in training and practice it in, in tune-up races and all those sorts of things. So that's what I'll do. And uh, those are a few of my main takeaways from this episode. And now I want to hear your thoughts and takeaways on it. And the way I want to hear them is uh, I recently updated my website a little bit on scientifictriathlon.com. And in that process, I updated the commenting system on the show notes page. And what I want to do going forward for every single episode is to become really super active there with, with all the comments. I'll go in and check the comments daily. And let's bring the discussion forward and have a discussion together on those show notes pages for all episodes and for this one in particular. So go to thattriathlonshow.com and click through to the show notes for this episode or go directly to scientifictriathlon.com forward slash TTS82. That's as in that triathlon show 82. And uh, I hope I'll have the show notes ready. When you type that in, I usually get them done pretty close to the time at which the podcast is released so uh, yeah go there write your topics your thoughts on your thoughts on the topic not your topics on the foot and uh do you experience flow in training or racing that's a, that's a good place to start the discussion and have you found any patterns in when it happens if if you have experienced it and how will you apply what you just learned from this episode going forward so let's let's discuss these things in those comments i really really look forward to interacting with you there and of course, that show notes page is anyway where you can get a refresher of all the details from the interview. And on the next episode, I want to give you a little teaser. That's one, an interview with Mark Elliott. Uh, he is Triathlon New Zealand's High Performance Director. We'll talk about things like long-term athlete development, high performance training, and uh, traits of elite triathletes and uh, how all of those traits are attainable by age group athletes. So we talk a lot about what age groupers can learn from uh, from high performance training. And uh, yeah, Mark's top three picks for the traits of elite triathletes have nothing to do with genetics as a little teaser. Thank you again to Precision Hydration for sponsoring this episode. Remember to take their free online sweat test on precisionhydration.com to get your personalized hydration strategy for your next race and use the discount code thattriathlonshow, all one word, for 15% off. Thank you, as always, so very much for listening. I really, really appreciate it. Thank you to all of you who have been writing ratings and reviews. Seriously, you always make my day when you do that. It really helps a ton. Keep training smart and keep loving triathlon.